Okay, so today we begin a new series. And this series is What Happened in India. <laughs> oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, Jiminy Jillikas. <laughs> so this series will be my personal account, sort of like a reflective journal style confessional <laughs> of my journey to India, my, I guess, hero's journey, <laughs> the journey of no return <laughs> in some ways. And I'm going to take my time with it. I'm going to sort of, as always, keep it raw as everything that I've been doing has been basically raw and uncooked and just served up like this. So, pretty standard stuff if you've been following along with my other talking conversations. And I'll also mention that I do actually have a draft of this story in a book form. And I probably still could release that. I probably could still turn that into something. But at this stage, it's not a priority just because I don't have the resources and it's probably best for me to be putting my energies into things like online courses. So I have a number of online courses and that's really what I think is my best shot at making this work because at this stage it really is still unclear to me if this is going to work at all, if things are going to work out at all. So I thought I would just sort of get something out in this sort of raw talking style and leave the book for another time, another year probably and that means I will be sort of sidestepping in a certain way, which is to maintain people's anonymity and to not sort of step on any toes because there will be a confidentiality line, which I will have to be treading, treading carefully around. So I'm aware of that. And I mean, the good thing about a book is you can change names, you can change identities, and you can amalgamate characters, and that way you can tell a more intricate story. So, I'm aware of that. I'm sort of aware of the limits, and also, well, there's a, there's a freedom, too, to just speaking like this. There will be something very open and very heartfelt about how the story comes across like this. And who knows what will come out. I mean, I've picked just a few significant stories from my time in India. And I will be explaining just what my experience was. Just how I was affected from that first-person point of view. That subjective point of view. And... Boy, oh boy, are we in for a ride. So, 
I hope you can stick with me. This will be a pretty long series, maybe probably about 10 parts. And I've picked some of the most juicy moments of just, just, just life-shattering realizations. Just, just absolutely cataclysmically life-shattering realizations. So that's a little bit about this series. And then the last thing I'll say before we jump into the story is that I'd like to dedicate this series to a buyer. So if you're watching, (laughs) this one's for you. And I know there's a very small chance that you are actually watching. It's very unlikely. But nonetheless, it's dedicated to you. I also know it's not very appropriate to dedicate like a a story series to someone. It's more like if you're doing a book, then you dedicate the book to someone, right? Because a book is something significant. Just talking like this is not quite as, as weighty as a book. But nonetheless, I mean, I've never dedicated my other series to anyone, but I just feel that, well, I'd like to get dedicate this series to you, a buyer. That is, if you're out there. (laughs) So, let's get into this story. What happened in India? Oh my God, am I really doing this? What happened in India? Well, let me set the stage for you. Before I went to India, I was working in a job as a burrito boy. And that basically meant making burritos, cleaning dishes, mopping floors, chopping onions, ordering food, talking to the customer, counting money, saying, hi, can I take your order a hundred times a day? And I was actually regional manager along with another regional manager. So we were managing four fast food restaurants, these burrito stores. And as the story goes, I was actually fired from my job. And it was for a number of reasons, accumulating reasons, you could say. But one of them was actually my podcast, my actual talking on the internet. Because one of the staff members had asked, well, what do you do in your spare time? And I said, well, I run a podcast. And they looked it up. And one of the episodes that they found was Cures for Sexual Frustration, which was a episode on meditative practices and awareness techniques surrounding masturbation. And apparently that was enough to have a serious strike against my name, just to have said 
these things, which I still stand by as actually quite positive things. Like, I think the message in that episode is a positive thing, right? Learn to understand your sexuality and your frustration. Learn to contend with your masturbatory tendencies. Have a mature relationship with masturbation, right? And yet it was still enough to have a strike against my name. Now, there were other things, like other staff members complained about me in a harassment sort of nature. And many of the things which they held against me, I still to this day have no idea how they could have had that effect on them. And I partly put that down to my own ignorance my own inability to see how I affect other people. It's partly also due to the cultural climate of the times that we're living. And really, I mean, it's a ball of knots. Like, why was I, why was I fired from my job? Is a ball of knots that becomes a tangle in my mind if I go into it too deeply. Like, I can start to think about, like, all these things which I did, which I thought were the right thing to do, and yet they were held against me. And the downright truth of the matter, the downright fact of what happened there was that it hurt me. It hurt so bad to be cut off from that job. These people I had been working with for years. I had dedicated my time, I had dedicated my energies to this job. And, you know, I'd met mopped floors, I'd covered people, right? You know, little Lucy can't work tonight because she sprained her ankle at netball practice this afternoon. Okay, I'll do the job, right? I'll be there in a jiffy, right? And being regional manager, you do all sorts of things, right? You run around, you answer phone calls, you run errands, you follow things up, you answer emails, you answer calls, you're talking to people, and it just gets into your life, right? It seeps into every moment of your life. And it's this job that you're dedicated to. And a lot of the time, some of the time, the things that I was doing might not even have an effect. It would be just that I'm just there just in case something goes wrong, right? The classic example of this would be that one of the stores runs out of food and then it's like, okay, well, I need to drive the food across town so they don't run out. And yet when I get there, well, the next delivery's turned up so they do have the food, right? So... To dedicate so much and to really be involved in something, in a community, and then to just be like cut off and for the worst reasons possible, for like personal character flaws, right? To have my own character flaws held against me, it it was just so painful and I heard nothing from anyone. That was probably the worst thing of it. 
It's just that no one wanted to have anything to do with me. So it was probably, I mean, it still is probably one of the most painful things that has happened to me emotionally, psychologically, and interpersonally, right? Because it was my only community at that time. It was the only major project I had at that time. So getting fired really hurt. And then the other side of the story is that while I was working in this job, I was learning more and more about meditation, right? I was reading heaps of books. I was reading about a book a day on psychology, philosophy, religion, and meditative practices, these sorts of things. And to add to that, I was listening to talks, right? I was listening to university lectures. I was listening to spiritual teachers. And I was also regularly attending meditative retreats, meditation retreats. So I'd be doing 10 days here, 10 days there. And also meditating every day and exercising and eating healthy. I think I was I was already starting to go vegetarian then and I was even experimenting with vegan diet for a time. And one of the speakers that I came across, one of the <laughs> one of the discourse teachers that I found was of course Osho. So I sort of stumbled across Osho by chance on this pop-up internet channel and I was listening to his lectures and I was just like like just having this like being blown like my not 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 like mind blown being blown my being was being blown to bits by the things this guy was saying like it was just so outrageous and he was just getting into all these parts of me and i was just like what who is this guy how is this possible and it's like I had already heard like a lot of spiritual teachers by then. I had heard some heavy cats by then. But this was something else. This was just a whole nother level. And of course, because it was a pop-up channel that was giving these discourses, releasing this content, it got famous very fast and then it got deleted because of copyright. So I had luckily another break with finding Osho lectures, which was that I met this guy, this incredible Indian guy on a meditation retreat. And I actually had some very profound conversations with him, very influential conversations with him as well. But one of the things that he did was that he actually gave me his Osho discourse collection right so this this would have been it would have been about 3000 lectures and each lecture is between one and a half hours and 2 hours right so we're looking at 6000 hours of lectures in english right so the the hindi one is something like you know 10000 hours but of course i was only listening in english and so I'm working this job and I'm listening to these Osho 
lectures and getting my brain fried and like meditating every day, reading books, eating healthy, exercising. And as I'm doing this more and more, I'm starting to hear the call. I'm starting to hear the call to go to India to say, I need to go to where this guy was. I need to go to where there are people who can hear this sort of thing. And and like, like what kind of people listen to this? Like, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting through these lectures thinking like, what kind of people are into this? Like, I cannot imagine. And of course, in many of the lectures, there's a, he's talking to a crowd, so you can hear them laughing and you can hear them responding and there's questions and these sorts of things. So this whole time I'm having this sort of building up call to go to India. Now, the plot gets even thicker than this. The, the, the weight gets even worse than this, which is that I then started experimenting with hardcore A-grade psychedelic substances. So for a short period, I was going into methylene dioxymethamphetamine, ditryptamine, DMT, and LSD, and also on occasions magic mushrooms. So these are some very potent, very hardcore psychedelic substances. And I was doing this for the purposes of consciousness, you know, like I actually, <laughs> when I did talk to people overseas about this, it would be sort of funny that they would, no, normally the story goes like, you have psychedelic substances and then you go, oh, consciousness, meditation, Oh, spiritual gurus and teachers, I need to learn about all this stuff, right? And then you go into that stuff and then you learn about it, right? That's the normal how the story goes. For me, for me, it was the opposite. <laughs> for me, it was, okay, I'm learning about meditation. I'm learning about psychology and I'm doing it. And then that sort of eventually led me to do drugs. <laughs> so that was... That was just adding to this thing of, man, I need to go to India. I need to find these people. I actually have to actualize these extraordinary cosmic existential realizations that I'm having, right? It's not a, it, it was, it very quickly became to the point where, like, just sitting and meditating on DMT wasn't enough. It was like, okay, that's an amazing experience. It's very important insights, but I somehow need to connect that, that godlike experience, that infinity experience with my real life. I need to bring it back down to earth. So the calling was just so brutal. The calling was just like, man, I need to go to India. I need to get there somehow. I need to get to this place, this resort, which was Osho's resort, Osho International Meditation Resort. And I'm just thinking, how can I go there? And really, like to just tie up the, the little moment on drugs, there are whole stories 
from that chapter in my life, which maybe at the certain time I'll go into, maybe the time when the time is right, I'll be able to share, but it's a it's a very colorful journey and it's not all beautiful. There are some very dark moments, very dark and hard times. But at least I was sort of seeing that I need to come out of it. I need to grow out of it. And as this happened more and more, you know, I became more and more disconnected from my job, right? It was just becoming so shallow and so tedious and so difficult to sort of get along with the boss as well like to see to see a man put so much mental and emotional energy into something for the purposes of like cold hard money like that image was just becoming more and more repulsive like like what are you doing like are you out of your mind to be putting much that much energy into something that gives you basically nothing, right? And at this time, I would be like sitting on a couch and meditating and having like just bursting ecstasy, right? Just just like out of this world, just emotional, mental, existential ecstasy, right? And and that's that's without drugs. That's just like stone cold sober ABC sort of meditation experience. And then it's like going to work and then trying to get something to work for you and it it gives nothing, right? Sure it gives money. But it it's it's just tasteless. It's substanceless. And of course maybe the boss was sensing this sort of disgust that I was developing and it was like well that's what was making him see me as something so worthless which i'm sure he sure he did at the end i mean he was very cold at the end so yeah and it all came to a head and i sort of had this thing where well i mean the one thing that kept me there i'll say was the money because i kept thinking if only i had a little bit more money if only i could just save a little bit more money i just need that bit more money i need to reach that financial goal so it was sort of like this this clash between this beautiful world this beautiful just magic this mystical magic that i wanted to go into and this thing but like oh if i just had some money right? So, in the end, that choice, that sort of clash was made for me in this event of being fired from my job. It was, in some ways, like the universe was saying, you need to do this. So, yeah, it's like, if you don't make the right choice, the universe will make it for you and it will hurt. It will really hurt a lot. It'll be the it'll be the hard way to do it, right? Like if I had have just seen it for myself, I should have just quit. I should have just quit and gone and saved myself all of that emotional pack 
that emotional baggage, right? Because cause I beat myself up for years. Beat myself up for years over getting fired. Like it was, it was just near downright impossible for me to think of myself as a good person at all. So, yeah, it really hurt. It really hurt, but at least one thing was good from it, which was that now I could go to India. Now I could do what I was telling myself I had to do before I died. So I had a couple of months to just sort of simmer, and then I booked my ticket, I made the arrangements, I packed up all my stuff, all my stuff went into storage. I had... (laughs) I had... How much stuff did I have? I had like I had like three or four milk crates worth of stuff along with 300 books. <laughs> so it was basically a car load. You know, I could fit everything that I owned in my whole life into one car load. So not very much stuff by some people's measure. And that all went into storage while I went overseas and... My first stop was actually to Berlin. So I didn't go directly to India. And I was visiting a friend in Berlin. (laughs) He was a jazz musician, a jazz drummer. And he'd been living there for a year or so. And I just went there for a month just to sort of check things out, to get sort of a bit of a break from everything. And... While we were there, we got up to all sorts of mischief, right? You know, we we went to places, we went to music, we walked around the streets, and there was a lot of graffiti, but I wasn't doing any graffiti at all, actually. I had pretty much just resigned all graffiti that I was doing. And I actually ended up joining an Osho meditation I guess you call it studio. So I was going there every day to do kundalini meditation. And (laughs) probably the most significant thing of Berlin was that (laughs) I took two tabs of acid and meditated for 40 hours straight. (laughs) So it was like, wake up, meditate for three hours, drop two tabs of acid, and then meditate for three hours and nothing happened. And then after three hours, when I thought, well, they were dud tabs, they hit me and it was like, whoa, Kazam. And then I was like sitting on the couch all, it was like all one afternoon and one night and then all one day. So like 30 hours. And (laughs) that 30 hours, of course is a whole story unto itself, right? You know, like I had inner child dreams. I had dances around the stars. I went to Santa's workshop and met the elves. And, (laughs) oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. There was just... There was just so much that happened in that trip. And 
Yeah, maybe I will write a book about it one day. <laughs> Santa's workshop is really something that you cannot believe. Like, the things that go on there with the elves and the mischief they get up to and the implications for our world. Oh, man, it's just mind-blowing. And it was just amazing to to meet Santa and to actually see how things work. So, yeah. And then that night we went and I was still tripping and we saw this free jazz gig where it was like this performance piece where they were talking and playing music and it was like interacting with the audience and it's like, whoa, is, is this the performance? Is it not? It's just like, oh, man, what's going on? It was just the the most trippy thing to end the day with and in some ways perfect. So, <laughs> yeah. But in all, Berlin still felt like a waiting room, right? I still had that urge of like, how do I get to Osho International Meditation Resort? How do I get to this place? And eventually, of course, I got on the plane and made my way there. And my touchdown was in New Delhi. So I arrived in New Delhi and went to the hostel. And my thinking was, I'll stay in New Delhi for 10 days just to sort of get a feel for India and just to sort of adjust to the culture, right? Because everyone talks about the culture shock, right? Because India is so different to this Western Australian lifestyle that I've been living. So I thought, okay, well, I'll be smart about the culture shock. <laughs> How bloody ignorant. <laughs> I will just have 10 days in New Delhi and then I'll be adjusted and fresh and I'll see how things work. And then I'll go across to Pune, where Osho's meditation resort is. And then I'll be fresh and ready to go and ready to get into it and do some real serious meditation. <laughs> oh my God. Basically, by the first day, I was just completely overwhelmed by India. Like the shock of the traffic, the dust, the mess, the poverty, the smell, the smoke, the pollution, the overcrowding, the crumbling buildings, the tangles, the traffic. Oh man, it was just like being outside was just this just this sensory overload. Just downright like it's like a garbage truck has just dumped on you right and it was like each day I would just be going out a little bit more going out for a little bit walking around the streets and it was like okay I need to find the supermarket I need to get some food and it was like so much just to walk out and I kept I kept pushing myself right I kept saying I have to go outside I have to look around I have to have this experience and I remember walking around once and this guy comes up to me and he's got like munted hands, munted feet and like teeth missing and he's wearing just rags and he's got dirt all over me and he sort of comes up to me and he looks at me and sort of snarls and grunts and I'm like, okay, well, it's obvious what he wants, right? So I'll get some money out. I pull out my wallet and I give him 
some money. And then he asked for some more. And I say, okay, well, here you go. And I give him some more. And it was just like, damn, this guy, this guy has nothing. This guy is like barely scavenging enough to stay alive in this horrible condition. And here I am just like giving him money. And for me, it's just like spare change, right? And that's something, of course, that I knew in India, which was that if someone asks you for money, someone you, you have to give it to them. And of course, I had no, no problem with giving them money because, you know, for me, it was always just spare t- change. Like a hundred rupees is $2 Australian. And for some of these people, that's all they earn in a week, right? And this guy, this guy, well, he really hit me because of how bad off he was. And someone came along and shooed him away. But it was just this shock of like, okay, I'm I'm giving you 200 rupees. And in my wallet is like, you know, 5,000 rupees. It's just like shock of this discrepancy, like in your face discrepancy. And, you know, that's an experience that you can only really understand until you've had it yourself. And, of course, there are a lot of different reactions with giving money. Some people, you give money and then they ask for more and then they ask for more. Some people, you give them money and then they leave. One guy gave me some money and then he blessed me. He actually did this touch on my head and my knees. And I was like, whoa, I actually felt it, right? Like, whoo, the blessing. So that, along with just the chaos of the city, really got me. And I actually became sick when I was eating more of the food. And the majority of the time, I would just have a sandwich at the hostel, Right, So I wasn't really being adventurous with the food. I was really being safe with the food. But I had this meal which I got from a vegetarian restaurant. And it was like, okay, this should be safe because it's a high-class restaurant. And I can see that there's lots of rich people eating there. And it's more expensive than the street food. And... (laughs) It's vegetarian, right? So you'd think it would be safe, but when I got it, it was just like, like I didn't even know what this is. I, I've never even seen anything like it. Like, how do I eat this sort of thing, right? It wasn't a soup. It wasn't a bread. It was just something else. Now, of course, I learned later that, well, that's the masala dosa. And <laughs> that's a very common dish in India. But for me, I was like... You know, what is it? I I don't even know. So I actually ate just a little bit of it and then ended up giving it away to someone on the street who obviously needed it more than me. And I believe it was that meal that brought on the deli belly. And that is what they call the tourist's reaction to food in 
New Delhi. And oh my God, I was so sick. I thought I was going to die, right? I was just like feeling this pain all through my body. And the diarrhea was pissing out my ass. Just pissing. It was just like, oh, bedridden, right? And I was staying in a dorm. So I was like on my bunk bed. And then someone would come in, someone would go out, people were coming and going all the time. And then I would like go into the bathroom, piss out my ass, and then go to bed and then just be like, oh, here it comes again. And then it's like, I hope there's not going to be someone in the bathroom or like, I'm sure people would would have heard me anyway. Like, oh man, that poor guy, that poor white guy has got the deli belly. And it was just like in bed, just like thinking, am I actually going to die? Should I call a doctor? And then also being so weak that I couldn't even stand up, like to stand up and then go down three levels and then talk to the hostel manager to say, oh, can you get me this doctor? That amount of energy might actually kill me. So it's just like, if I just wait, maybe I'll be all right. If I just hold on, I'll be all right. And the thing that got me through that, the thing that really saved me was actually music. So at that time, I had this song playing inside me. It was this music, this circus band music. So there was still somehow a light to that, a positive side to it. But I was just absolutely bedridden and some... <laughs> Some jolly English fellows came in and they were like, oh, do you want to go for some beers? And I was like, well, normally I would want to go for some beers. Or at least that's what I thought. In in actuality, I probably just looked at him and said, no, I'm dying or something like this. <laughs> and, the, and the jolly English fellows understood. And they were like, oh, yeah, the, the deli belly. We understand. We had a bit of that. So, yeah. And I mean, I did get a little bit better. And I was actually able, this might have been before I was sick, I was actually able to go and see the Red Fort in New Delhi. So I met this English girl, this cute young English girl, and she was actually in India by herself, brave soul or ignorant soul like me, maybe. <laughs> and she invited me to go and see the Red Fort and I thought, damn it, I'll have to have to do this, you know, if this girl asks you out, you have to go with her. And I have to do at least one touristy thing while I'm here, right? So we went and see, saw the Red Fort, and that was the big sort of castle in New Delhi, this historical monument. And it was so hot that day. It was, it was like 50 degrees Celsius in the sun, right? Just scorching. Scorching heat, the absolute brutal, the most brutal scorching heat, right? There's there's probably nowhere else on earth that is hotter than that, naturally. So, except for maybe at a volcano, right? You'd probably have to stand next to a volcano to reach that sort of 
higher level. But yeah, at least I got to do one touristy thing. And then I was in bed just like wondering if I'm going to die. And it was coming to the end of my 10 days and I had this choice, right? I could either extend my stay and sort of rest and recover, which would mean actually postponing my flight as well. Or I could sort of muster up the strength to get on the plane and go. And in the end, I had like a bag of nuts and a chocolate bar. <laughs> and that was the only food I'd had in three days after pissing out my ass. So I I would have lost a lot of weight. And I did manage to check out, crawl into the taxi, crawl onto the plane and make the flight to Pune. And I touched down and got in a tuk and just went to the next hostel, which was round the corner from the Osho International Meditation Resort. And Pune was still quite intense. It was still had that India vibe, but it was at least a grade down from New Delhi. Like, New Delhi is brutal. It is just absolutely brutal. There's just, there's just no trees, for one thing, right? Just not enough trees. At least Pune had some trees. So, I realized at the end of that 10 days, if you've adjusted to New Delhi, then you're probably half dead. <laughs> so, maybe I, in an ironical kind of way, did adjust to New Delhi. <laughs> but I touched down in Pune and then I went to the hospital, checked in and I thought, okay, well, I'm here. I'm here. Finally, I've arrived. I made it. I have to go and see this resort. So I walked around the corner. It was only a like less than a 10 minute walk to the Osho International Meditation Resort. And I walked along that road and I and I sat down right out the front. And of course, I recognized that that big black building with the black walls and the mirrors and the big sign in metal shining letters that says Osho International. And I'd I'd seen it in the promotional videos. I'd seen it in photos. I'd heard people talk about it. And of course, I'd been thinking this for years, like what sort of things happen at a place like this? What things go on in that place? And I sat down across the road and just I just sat there to realize, oh, I've arrived. And in that moment, well, I wished I could cry. I wished I could cry. If I could realize the beauty of making it that far to just get there, I, I could have cried. And I spent some time there and I didn't actually go in straight away because I had to get a robe and I had to get some things sorted out. But as it actually turned out, I actually went back to the resort, uh, back to the hostel and then the next day I was sick. So I was actually had this big relapse of being sick for three days and I was bedridden for three days. And I thought, I was just like, ah, oh, I thought I was getting better from this, right? I thought I was getting, being able to come out of this, right? Because I thought I'd traveled and I'd been able to 
start to get on the mend a bit and to recover from New Delhi, but I was sick. And it was also like, okay, I'm in this new place. How do I get food? What do I eat? And then I ended up actually eating some street food, which probably did not help much to my sickness. But I really, I really wasn't eating much. I was sort of just like crawling around the streets, getting Gatorade or something, you know, just trying to get my fluids happening. And it was just like, damn, I am so sick, right? So much for the plan of turning up fresh and then doing meditation. (laughs) I was just wrecked, just destroyed by India. And then eventually, after a couple of days, I was able to, you know, buy a maroon robe, which is mandatory for going to the resort. And then sort of going in with my passport and my paperwork and some money and actually getting things set up. And I walked in to the, (laughs) you know, the new visitor's center and I walked in and everything was made of this black, smooth, reflective marble. And it was just like perfectly clean. And the benches were just like straight, clean marble. And I sat down and looked out over the resort. And there was this giant fish pond with all these goldfish swimming in it. These palms, these little lilies, these lotus flowers, these giant bamboo structures, these waterfalls. I could hear the sound of the water, the water falling, that sound of water falling. And there's a Buddha statue. And it's just like, oh my God, the beauty. Just like the contrast of the chaos of New Delhi. And then that perfectly clean paradise. And I just sat there. I was just like, oh my God, I've made it. I've made it. I can't believe I made it. And then... The first person to come up to me was this Chinese woman, this beautiful, gorgeous Chinese girl. And I was just like, whoa, damn, are all the girls here that gorgeous? I'm not going to get any meditation done. I'm just like, ah, get away from me. I'm okay. And then <laughs> and then later on, another lady came up to me, this German lady, which turned out to be one of my friends in the long run. And, you know, she was able to say, oh, welcome, you know need to get your paperwork sorted and your your day pass you know there's this whole process and then you know get your things ready so that you can actually go into the resort and I did all that and you know it took some time and I was like okay well, how long do you want to be here for and I was just like uh, I'll just start with a month right she was like whoa a month okay and I was just like yeah I got a one-way ticket I'm gonna be here a while so and I mean that was probably the good thing about working in that job, right? Because I had some money. I had enough money to be able to travel for about a year. So that was at least one good thing. Apart from all the emotional and mental suffering, then at least I could do this. At least I could actually go for it. So I was going to make the most of it. I was going to go deep. (laughs) And I remember when I walked in, I walked through the front gate. (laughs) And the first thing I saw was a peacock standing on a waterfall. 
<laughs> and I was just like, what? Why is there a peacock standing on a waterfall? <laughs> Whose idea was this? <laughs> and it's just like perched right up there. And there's like a waterfall going down and people, everyone's wearing these maroon robes and it's like white marble paths and there's these branches, these paradise trees all around. And I'm just like, what? Just like, I am in it. I have entered. Ah. (laughs) And then, of course, from there it unfolded like I was just walking around and there was these black marble buildings, all the buildings were black, smooth, clean marble buildings, all the paths were white marble, there was all these trees, and it was like, wow, and I went over to Buddha Grove, which is this big amphitheater made of white marble, and I realized there, Buddha Grove, there's the platform, and I actually saw the platform, I was just like, okay, so that's the exact, that's the exact platform, that Osho sat on while he was giving the discourse lectures that I had been listening to, right? That's where it actually happened. That's where it actually happened. (laughs) And there was like, you know, pop music blaring out these speakers and people dancing. And I walked on deeper and it was like, okay, Here's the Multiversity Plaza, right? This is the mystery school where you do all the consciousness techniques and the awareness courses. And the the Multiversity Plaza is this big glass pyramid. And of course, I'd seen it in photos. I'd seen it in the promotional videos. But then to actually see it, I, I, I sort of wanted to like kneel down and be like, you know, oh, <laughs> something like this. It was just like the Multiversity Plaza, the Mystery School, the Mystery School. I'm at the, I'm at the Mystery School. I found it. And then, you know, there's like, there's a cafe with people sitting around drinking, drinking coffee and, you know, people smoking in one corner. And then I'm just like, wow. And I keep walking around and there's all these buildings and they'd be called like, Osho house or Jesus house or Lao Tzu house. And, you know, it's just like, man, I am in it. And so, yeah. And then around in another area, there is the the swimming pool, right? So this is Osho Basho. And then there's another cafeteria, which was actually, when I arrived, closed because it was being renovated. It was being fixed up. So... Yeah, to sort of walk around and then and then the best part, the most incredible part was to actually go across to the other side and all the while I'm looking at this place and just seeing like, oh, I've seen that in photos and then seeing like, whoa, it's so different in real life. But the the most grand thing was to turn up and see and see the meditation hall, right? to to walk out and to just like have the trees parting and to see this giant marble pyramid just rising out of the water it was just like oh man 
what a place to be. And that walkway, right, where you walk across the water to go in and then the stairs go up to the side into the pyramid was just like, oh, it was another, it was another one of those moments, right? It was like, oh, you know, it's like continuous moments like this. And it was just like, damn, I've made it. I've entered. And yeah, I mean, my plan for the first little while was to just suss it out. And it took me a while. It took me a while to get with the program. And basically for the first two weeks, I didn't talk to anyone <laughs> maybe even longer maybe three weeks or four weeks I was just sort of like having the standard day pass and then just going to the standard ABC meditations right you know like dynamic meditation kundalini meditation nada brahma meditation chakra sounds meditation these sorts of things I was just like okay how do I do this how do I get there and it took me took me a good month before I would actually start to talk to someone and sit down with someone, right? And at least I was there, you know, that moment of sitting out the front on the side of the road and just just sitting there, you know. I'm sure I'm sure if someone saw me, they would be like, "Oh, who's he waiting for?" Sort of thing. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe in a place like that, they're used to having people just. <laughs> need a moment to take it all in so yeah and like what a journey it was like I remember stepping off the plane and just just having my foot fall for the first time in India and thinking this is where it will happen this is where I need to be, this is where I've been yearning to come and this this is so significant, this is so important and to just, to just arrive was such an adventure, it was such a journey, I felt like, wow, what an achievement just to be here. <laughs> So, yeah, I think, I think that's probably enough for this chapter. I think we'll leave it there for today. So that is chapter one in the series, What Happened in India? And we'll continue probably next week with chapter two. So stay tuned. Thank you very much. I'm going to go and get a tissue because I really need a tissue right now. I actually don't have any handy, so I have to get some tissues. So thanks very much. Tune in again, and we'll be back soon with more.